This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from the Times of Israel. First from the Times of Israel, Obama, Netanyahu justified almost anything to keep power as defender of Jews. By Times of Israel staff. In his new memoir, former U.S. President Barack Obama provides fresh details on his often tense relationships with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and pro-Israel lobby AIPAC, criticizing them for working to rally domestic opposition to his policies concerning Israel. In A Promised Land, which comes out Tuesday, Obama describes Netanyahu as smart, canny, tough, and a gifted communicator, who used his knowledge of American politics and the media to resist administration policies he disagreed with. Obama writes that Netanyahu's vision of himself as the chief defender of the Jewish people against calamity allowed him to justify almost anything that would keep him in power, according to excerpts from the book published by the Jewish Insider. The 44th U.S. president recalls being told by Rahm Emanuel, his first chief of staff as he took office, you don't get progress on peace when the American president and the Israeli prime minister come from different political backgrounds. Obama says he began to understand Emanuel's insight after spending time with both Netanyahu and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Regarding AIPAC, the pro-Israel lobbying group, Obama charges that its positions moved rightward in accordance with the political shift in Israel, even when Israel took actions that were contrary to U.S. policy. He laments that politicians who criticized Israel policy too loudly risked being tagged as anti-Israel and possibly anti-Semitic and were confronted with a well-funded opponent in the next election. Obama says he was the subject of a whisper campaign that sought to portray him as insufficiently supportive or even hostile toward Israel during the 2008 presidential race. On election day, I'd end up getting more than 70% of the Jewish vote, but as far as many AIPAC board members were concerned, I remained suspect, a man of divided loyalties, someone whose support for Israel, as one of campaign manager David Axelrod's, uh, Axelrod's friends colorfully put it, wasn't felt in his kishkes, guts in Yiddish, he says. While saying Republicans were less concerned about the establishment of a Palestinian state, Obama also asserts many Democratic Congress members were reticent to publicly address the matter out of concern they would lose support from AIPAC supporters and donors. Obama also addresses his push for Israel to freeze settlement construction as part of his efforts to facilitate Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. Negotiations resumed briefly at the end of the 10-month freeze, which began in 2010, but Abbas aborted them and the moratorium was not extended by Netanyahu. The former U.S. president says it was reasonable to ask Israel to take such a step as it was the stronger party. However, as expected, Netanyahu's reaction was sharply negative and Obama says his administration came under pressure from the premier's American allies. The White House phone started ringing off the hook, Obama says, with reporters and Jewish leaders wondering why we were picking on Israel. He accuses Netanyahu of an orchestrated push against his administration, which he says underscored that normal policy differences with an Israeli prime minister 
exacted a domestic political cost. He also recalls a meeting with Netanyahu during the APAC conference in Washington in 2010. Reports at the time said Obama snubbed Netanyahu by leaving a tense meeting between the two. Rejecting this account, Obama says the meeting ran overtime, and that he suggested to Netanyahu that the meeting be paused as he had a previously scheduled commitment. He said Netanyahu told him he was happy to wait and that the meeting ended cordially. When Emmanuel told him the next day of the reports, Obama recalls it was a rare instance when I outcursed Rahm, referring to his chief of staff's notoriously salty tongue. The publication of the excerpts relating to Israel in the book come after other news outlets put out fragments concerning Obama's successor, Donald Trump, who he accuses in the memoir of fomenting racial panic for political gain. He also writes that his election to the White House played a role in Trump's rise to power by stoking racial discord and that the divisions in America run deep. Trump's departure will not be enough to bridge the divide, he says. And next from the Times of Israel, Biden taps longtime advisor Ron Klain as White House Chief of Staff by Alexandra Jaffe. Washington Associated Press. The U.S. President-elect Joe Biden has chosen his longtime advisor Ron Klain to reprise his role as Chief of Staff, installing an aide with decades of experience in the top role in his White House. Klain will lead a White House likely to be consumed by the response to the corona pandemic which continues to spread unchecked across the nation, and he'll face the challenge of working with a divided Congress that could include a Republican-led Senate. Klain served as the coordinator to the Ebola response during the 2014 outbreak. In a statement Wednesday night, Biden suggested he chose Klain for the position because his longtime experience in Washington had prepared him for such challenges. His deep, varied experience and capacity to work with people all across the political spectrum is precisely what I need in a White House Chief of Staff as we confront this moment of crisis and bring our country together again, Biden said. Klain, who is Jewish, served as Chief of Staff for Biden during Barack Obama's first term, was Chief of Staff to Vice President Al Gore in the mid-1990s, and was a key advisor on the Biden campaign guiding Biden's debate preparations and coronavirus response. He's known and worked with Biden since the Democrats' 1987 presidential campaign. The choice of Klain underscores the effort of the, uh, the incoming Biden administration will place on the coronavirus response from day one. Klain has extensive experience in public health as the Ebola response coordinator, and played a central role in drafting and implementing the Obama administration's economic recovery plan in 2009. I'm honored by the president-elect's confidence and will give my all to lead a talented and diverse team in a Biden-Harris White House, Klain tweeted. Choosing Klain is also likely to assuage some concerns among progressives who had been gearing up for a fight over one of the first and biggest staff picks Biden will make as he builds out his White House team. The chief of staff is typically a gatekeeper for the president, crafts political and legislative strategy, and often serves as a liaison to Capitol Hill in legislative negotiations. Progressives had expressed concerns that Biden would pick one of his other former chiefs of staff, Steve Ricchetti, who faces skepticism for his work as a lobbyist, or Bruce Reed, who is seen as too much of a moderate to embrace reforms pushed by the party's base. 
but progressives see Klain as open to working with them on top priorities like climate change and health care. And next, an analysis piece by Avi Isserkaroff. Biden's victory prompts great expectations in Ramallah, quite possibly too great. On Tuesday, Saeb Erekat, Secretary General of the Executive Committee of the PLO, died at Hadassah Ein Karim Medical Center in Jerusalem. Dr. Abu Ali, as his friends would call him, had long been formally designated Kabir al-Mufawidin, the greatest of the Palestinian Authority's negotiators, a title that may have carried some weight in the years when actual negotiations with Israel took place. Arakat would cite it in interviews to prove how ostensibly vital he was, especially as he had no impressive record in Israeli jails and no freedom fighter persona, unlike many of his Fatah colleagues. Over the past 11 years, in which there have been no substantive negotiations, however, the title became worthless at best and the subject of ridicule by those who oppose such talks. Erekat's support for the peace process with Israel steadily eroded his status over the years, as he was perceived as having led the Palestinians down a dead end. He had been prominent at crucial political moments, beginning with the Madrid conference where his appearance in a kefia for some reason angered the Israelis, and on through countless sessions in Oslo, Cairo, Camp David, Annapolis, and beyond. He also headed the talks with Foreign Minister Tippi Livni during Ehud Olmert's term as Prime Minister. But both the Israelis and the Palestinians always knew that regardless of Kabir Mufawidin moniker, the deals were always done or not done by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas or his predecessor Yasser Arafat. Some Hebrew media outlets once considered Arakat a candidate to succeed Abbas, but he was never a real option, always lagging one step behind. Arakat's casket was placed in the Palestinian Authority's Mukata headquarters in Ramallah on Wednesday, and senior Palestinian officials came to pay tribute to him, albeit maintaining their distance in light of his death from COVID-19. Erekat suffered from severe lung disease, and when he contracted the disease, it was clear he was at high risk. The Guard of Honor carried his casket to the Mugata entrance, where Abbas eulogized him. Tuesday, November 11th, was also the anniversary of the death in 2004 of Arafat, with whom Erekat had an up-and-down relationship, but to whom he always remained loyal, even during the worst days of the Second Intifada. The two funerals were vastly different. After Arafat's death in a Paris hospital, his body was brought to the Mukata amid chaotic scenes. As soon as the helicopter landed, a crowd of 10,000 to 15,000 people swarmed to its doors, trying to touch the legend one last time. Complete disorder, just the way the old man liked it. That day appears to have marked the beginning of the Palestinian Authority's slow and painful demise. Although Abbas restored law and order to the West Bank, the Hamas coup in Gaza took place on his watch, and the schism in the Palestinian arena has festered for the past 13 and a half years. The Palestinians are at a low. They are marginalized, almost irrelevant, a yoke around the necks of wealthy Arab states. Now pivotal Sunni states also view them in the resonant words of Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Iban, 
as ones who never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Negotiations with Israel are receding into history. The Abbas Erekat PA cut its ties with Washington, which cut off most of its financial support, after U.S. President Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Even the West Bank settlements are starting to gain support in some international quarters as a legitimate part of the Israeli state. Joe Biden's U.S. presidential victory has restored some color to the cheeks of senior officials in the PA, Fatah, and mainly Abbas's close circle. The hope is that four years of diplomatic drought are ending, and the expectation is that the PA is back in business. It is doubtful that Biden will prove as accommodating as the PA would like to believe, however. Ramallah will need to demonstrate an abundance of readiness to progress in order to avoid angering the incoming American administration. Had Trump won re-election, Fatah and Hamas would have been inclined to hold parliamentary elections for the first time since 2006. Jabril Rajoud of Fatah and Saleh al-Aouri of Hamas had been holding intensive preparatory talks for such a vote, but they were halted in recent weeks both because of opposition on both sides and in order to wait out the U.S. elections. Now Ramallah will not want to irritate Biden from the get-go by reconciling with the terrorists of Hamas so that that process is likely over. On Tuesday, indeed, Rajoub announced that the reconciliation was delayed due to special circumstances. As for parliamentary elections, those two are likely off the agenda, at least until Biden's policies on the Palestinian issue start to become clear. The PA will instead wait out the two-and-a-half-month transition period, hope for no parting shots from the Trump administration, wait again as Biden deals with higher priorities, and then likely explore contacts with the new administration to examine renewing ties. Trump may yet attempt to complicate matters for his Democratic successor by making a move Biden would find it difficult to rescind, announce official recognition of Israeli sovereignty at major settlement blocks such as Ma'aled Adumim and Gush Etzion, or in the E1 area east of Jerusalem, for instance. Along with looking to restore ties with D.C., the PA may also consider restoring ties with Israel, if annexation stays off the table. In May, as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu indicated that extending Israeli sovereignty to all settlements in the Jordan Valley was imminent, Abbas cut off financial and security coordination and also refused to accept payments from Israel of taxes and customs duties it collects on the Palestinian Authority's behalf. Since then, the PA employees have been receiving only half pay. There is also no guarantee that the PA will renew its ties with Israel. Ramallah is feeling stronger now than when annexation loomed. Netanyahu agreed to suspend the move as part of the normalization process with the UAE, and it will probably try to set conditions before resuming coordination with Israel. But current expectations in Ramallah may be too high. Once Biden has settled in, it expects Washington to want to renew relations which for months have been confined to minimal communications between the PA's General Intelligence Services, headed by Majed Farage, and American Intelligence. It anticipates that Abbas may be invited to the White House, a step to be followed by the reopening of the PLO's offices in Washington, and it is awaiting a renewal of substantial American financial aid to the PA along with security assistance and security equipment. We shall see. 
The key question is how capable Biden and his new administration will prove in regenerating hope and faith in the two-state solution. West Bank residents can see as well as anyone else that the notion of a Palestinian state on contiguous territory is hard to reconcile with the facts on the ground. Even if Biden were to broker a renewal of talks, he is unlikely to change the face of the West Bank with settlements and illegal outposts on so many hilltops. Gaza, too, will likely continue to defeat efforts to arrive at a peaceful solution. How exactly does one contend with the Hamas terror group, a regime running the lives of two million Palestinians, that does not want peace with Israel and possibly not even quiet borders with it? And finally, as ever, there is the matter of Abbas's future. Arafat has been gone 16 years this week. Now Arakat has gone too. This Sunday, Abbas will celebrate his 85th birthday. It is premature to eulogize him, but not to understand that he may not be in office for much longer. In such a scenario, it would actually be the new American administration that will have to wait for his successor or successors to gain control and to determine their policies regarding Israel and a peace process. And next from the Times of Israel, Pompeo heads for Europe, Mideast, as Palestinians blast plan to visit settlement by Times of Israel staff and AP. After refusing to acknowledge U.S. President Donald Trump's loss in last week's election, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is leaving Friday on a trip to Europe and the Middle East to countries where leaders have all congratulated former Vice President Joe Biden for his victory. The seven-nation trip is aimed at shoring up the outgoing Trump administration policies, notably its anti-China and anti-Iran policies, and will include visits to Israeli settlements in the West Bank that have been avoided by previous secretaries of state. Multiple media reports Thursday and Friday indicate Pompeo will visit the Pisagot winery in the settlement of Pisagot near Ramallah, though American officials have yet to confirm it. On Friday, Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mahmoud, uh, Mohammed Shtaya said the Palestinian government deplored the move. This dangerous precedent legalizes settlements and is a blow to international legitimacy and UN resolutions, he tweeted. Hussein al-Sheikh, a senior Palestinian official and close advisor to PA President Mahmoud Abbas, said the visit would be a challenge to international legitimacy and the positions of all previous U.S. administrations, which have emphasized the illegality of settlement in the occupied Palestinian territories. The PA's ties with Washington under Trump have been dire, with Ramallah refusing to deal with an administration that recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and relocated its embassy there, cut off all aid to the Palestinians, and recently introduced a peace plan Palestinians say strongly favors Israel. Pompeo is also reportedly planning to visit the contested Golan Heights. The visit comes exactly one year after Pompeo said that the U.S. did not consider Jewish settlements to be illegal, upending the long-held U.S. policy toward the West Bank communities. The Pisagot winery named a bottle after Pompeo to thank him for the move in February and issued a statement saying he had recognized the Jewish right to self-determination in our historical homeland. The winery was at the center of a dispute last year as it unsuccessfully challenged a European decision to put a label on all products that, came, that come from settlements. 
Last year, Pompeo visited the Western Wall in Jerusalem, accompanied by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Becoming the first U.S. Secretary of State to visit the capital's contested old city accompanied by a senior Israeli official. A prominent investor in Pisagot Winery is Miami-based businessman Simon Fallock, who is a major donor to the Republican Party and to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Pompeo arrives in Israel Wednesday and will likely meet Netanyahu, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi, and Mossad Chief Yossi Cohen, according to Walla. Pompeo's week-long tour takes him to France, Turkey, Georgia, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. But the usual foreign policy issues are likely to be overshadowed by the extraordinary moment in global politics. Most of the world has accepted the results of, the America's, of America's election, while the United States' top diplomat, as well as its president and much of his Republican Party, have not. Pompeo's trip comes days after he raised eyebrows by dismissing a reporter's question about the presidential transition by saying there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. He appeared to be speaking in jest and went on to say in a more serious tone that the world should be assured that the State Department will be functional and successful with the president who takes office January 20th. But those comments and subsequent statements in interviews with conservative media did not acknowledge that it's Biden who will become president then. The leaders of each of the countries he will visit have offered public congratulations to Biden. Four of those countries, France, Turkey, Georgia, and Qatar, have had a fractious relationship with the Trump administration, and it was not clear if Pompeo would hold public engagements with any of their leaders. Pompeo has had a notoriously frosty relationship with the press, and it was unclear if he planned to take questions from reporters. In keeping with Trump's refusal to concede and orders for cabinet agencies not to cooperate with the Biden transition team, the State Department has not been involved with facilitating Biden's calls to foreign leaders, according to officials familiar with the process. Pompeo's ardent support for Trump, who has claimed without evidence that the election was beset by fraud, threatens to hurt America's standing in making pronouncements about other countries' democratic shortcomings. On Thursday, Pompeo weighed in on Hong Kong's legislature, and he has in recent weeks denounced alleged electoral problems in Belarus, Tanzania, and Ivory Coast. Yet at his news conference Tuesday, Pompeo roundly dismissed a question about whether Trump's unfounded protests have created problems for U.S. credibility. You asked a question that is ridiculous, he responded. This department cares deeply and to make sure uh, cares deeply to make sure that elections around the world are safe and secure and free and fair, and my, officer, uh, my officers risk their lives to ensure that that happens. Biden has largely spoken with the leaders of Australia, Canada, Japan, and South Korea, and fielded congratulatory notes on social media and elsewhere from others. Yet Pompeo said he, was, he would carry on as if there was no charge. I'm the Secretary of State, he said. I'm getting calls from across the world. These people are watching our election. They understand that we have a legal process. They understand that this takes time. In Israel, Pompeo will discuss Trump's historic efforts to forge peace and cooperation throughout the Middle East, he told reporters. He is expected to discuss raising further pressure on Iran in the remaining two months of the Trump administration, 
which in 2018 bolted from a multinational denuclearization accord with Tehran and imposed punishing unilateral sanctions. And next from the Times of Israel, an op-ed from David Horowitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Times of Israel, message to U.S. President-elect Biden on Israel and the region first, do no harm. In March 2010, in the midst of a visit by the Vice President of the United States, Israel announced the initial approval of 1,600 new homes in a Jewish neighborhood of Jerusalem outside the pre-1967 lines. Joe Biden, for it was he, was furious. President Barack Obama, under whom he served, had repeatedly and publicly made clear his opposition to Israeli building both in West Bank settlements and in Jerusalem neighborhoods beyond the pre-1967 Green Line. And now here was Benjamin Netanyahu, for it was he, apparently insulting the administration by timing a major construction announcement to coincide precisely with the VP's visit. Except that this wasn't actually the case. The approval for Ramat Shlomo's new homes was not issued by the Prime Minister's office, but rather by a lower-level planning committee overseen by the Interior Ministry. The Interior Minister of the day, Shas's Eli Yeshai, likely didn't even realize that Ramat Shlomo was over the Green Line. I kid you not. Netanyahu was almost certainly unaware that the decision was about to be announced. He had no desire to pick a fight with Biden, and had only days earlier telephoned near Barkat to tell him uh, to tell the then Jerusalem mayor to drop an incendiary project to redevelop the Silwan area outside the old city. Biden had his officials look deeper into what happened, and they doubtless told him all of this. They doubtless told him that too, also, that Ramat Shlomo was an ultra-orthodox neighborhood founded by the late Yitzhak Rabin, that was already home to 20,000 people in a part of the city that Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas was well aware would never be relinquished by Israel. In the main address of his visit at Tel Aviv University, Biden condemned the new building plans, highlighting that what was most galling was the surprise and the apparent breach of trust. But he also vouched safe that Netanyahu had apologized both for the timing and for not letting him know in advance, and said he had been assured that the building work would not start for years, thus leaving time for the Obama administration's efforts to broker peace talks. I can't tell you that peace will come easily, said the vice president. At the conclusion of that address, you know better. With that, the vice president made clear that the incident was closed, at least as far as he was concerned. Evidently, however, Obama was not assuaged. That weekend, at the president's instruction, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, telephoned Netanyahu and, in a reportedly blistering 43-minute call, asserted that Israel had insulted America, had threatened to undermine the very essence of the bilateral relationship, and needed to demonstrate afresh its good-faith commitment to that partnership. The angry fallout continued into Sunday's U.S. political talk shows, where White House advisor David Axelrod popped up to issue further criticisms. Flash forward a decade. Those Ramat Shlomo homes have long since been built, and now it's Joe Biden who will have the last word on the direction of American relations with Israel, and Israel still led by his old sparring partner Netanyahu. My hope is that Biden's handling of the Ramat Shlomo incident 
including that declared awareness that peace won't come easily, will be a guide. The U.S. under Obama clashed heavily and relentlessly with Israel under Netanyahu in two central areas, the Palestinian conflict and Iran's nuclear weapons ambitions. On the Palestinians, the administration criticized any and all Israeli building over the Green Line, including in Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, such as Ramat Shlomo, rather than focusing on preventing the expansion of settlements in West Bank areas Israel would ultimately need to relinquish in order to separate from the Palestinians and maintain a Jewish democratic state. More significantly still, Obama and his second Secretary of State, John Kerry, insistently underestimated the devastating impact on Israel physically and psychologically of the Second Intifada, the strategic, uh, strategic onslaught of suicide bombings that killed 1,000 Israelis and were launched from the major West Bank cities that Israel had relinquished under the Oslo process. Everybody recalls Netanyahu going to the U.S. Congress in 2015 to lobby against Obama's Iran deal. Most people have forgotten Obama coming to Jerusalem's International Conference Center, Binyanei Ha'uma, in 2013 to lobby against Netanyahu's ultra-skeptical approach to negotiating with the Palestinians. Peace is possible, the U.S. President assured a carefully chosen audience of young Israelis. I know it doesn't seem that way. There will always be a reason to avoid risk, and there's a cost for failure. There will always be extremists to provide an excuse to not act, and there is something exhausting about endless talks about talks, the daily controversies, the grinding status quo. On Iran, meanwhile, Obama and Kerry wanted to believe that the promise of international rehabilitation, rejoining the family of nations, would help deter Islamist, the Islamist regime from pursuing the bomb. They thus negotiated and approved, uh, and approved an agreement, many of whose core provisions apply for a limited period only, that neither fully dismantled nor even completely froze the Iranian program. The Ayatollahs were allowed to improve their uranium enrichment process and refine their missile delivery systems within the terms of the 2015 deal, which they were also handsomely financially rewarded for signing. Rapacious ideologically and territorially, the Islamists in Tehran are playing the long game. They don't want to rejoin the family of nations. They want to sit at the head of the table, set the agenda, and bend the rest of the world to their will. This harsh truth seemed lost on the Obama presidency. If you've read my recent articles, you know how I feel about U.S. President Donald Trump's behavior surrounding last week's presidential elections. But that does not change the fact that 70% of Israeli Jews said shortly before the vote that they considered Trump the preferable candidate as far as Israel's interests are concerned for clear, solid, sensibly self-interested reasons. These reasons notably include his administration's handling of the Palestinian and Iranian issues. On the first, while ultimately blocking Netanyahu's unilateral West Bank annexation plans, Trump's White House made plain to the Palestinians that they would need to compromise on their maximalist demands, stop playing the victim game, and end their demonization of Israel. And on the second, it ratcheted up the financial pressure on Tehran and urged a new deal, that would this time genuinely require the regime to abandon its nuclear goals. 
As a consequence of those broad strategies, the Palestinians are being marginalized by former steadfast supporters in the Arab world, who are instead normalizing relations and joining forces with Israel in the effort to face down Iran. And the Ayatollahs are feeling the financial heat. Now along comes Biden. The incoming U.S. president will have a vast burden of domestic priorities with which to grapple. But there is already much talk of him rejoining the 2015 Iran deal, which was negotiated under his vice presidential watch and from which Trump withdrew. And West Bank Palestinian leaders who serve severed all relations with the Trump administration for its temerity in recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's historic and modern capital and preemptively rejected his peace plan are delightedly contemplating the return of a U.S. administration they believe will be more empathetic to their ambitions, more inclined to indulge their ongoing demonization of Israel, more willing to give them financial aid even as it is siphoned off to make payments to the families of terrorists and more forgiving of their obduracy. At home, Biden will be inheriting a bitterly divided America, succeeding a president who at this point seems determined to resist the will of the people. Abroad, where Israel and this region are concerned, however, the Trump administration bequeaths him a far more realistic approach than it inherited. I don't expect Biden, the most experienced incoming president since George H.W. Bush in 1989, and no neophyte when it comes to this region, to be guided by that you-know-better remark, at the end of his Tel Aviv speech a decade ago. I also don't think the status quo is beneficial on the Palestinian front, as Israel entangles itself more deeply with millions of hostile Palestinians, or on the Iranian front as the Ayatollahs continue their pursuit of the bomb, but at least while he settles in, he might want to consider a Middle Eastern diplomatic application of the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. And next from the Times of Israel, teens push for end to toxic culture of sexuality in U.S. Jewish youth groups by Catherine J. Prince, New York. Several young women are calling for an end to a Jewish youth group culture that they claim is rife with hypersexualization, toxic masculinity, misogyny, and sexual pressure. It's an open secret that many of the social interactions and practices normalized, even lauded within the enclave of youth groups, fly despite the broader Me Too era, the young women wrote in a piece published in E-Jewish Philanthropy. The six young women said they decided to go public after meeting and commiserating during the 2019-20 Rising Voices Writing Fellowship at the Jewish Women's Archives. They said they were tired of such behavior, getting dismissed as teens being teens. But more so, they hoped to initiate change. We want more honesty from youth group leadership. The hypersexual culture at retreats is not new. Everyone knows it's like that. And the leadership needs to take accountability, said Lila Goldstein, a first-year student at Brandeis University, who has attended retreats hosted by the Reform Movement's Nifty Youth Group. Five of the six co-authors spoke about their experiences in Reform, Progressive, Conservative, and Pluralistic groups in a Zoom interview with the Times of Israel. They also shared what sweeping changes they would like youth group leadership to take. 
To start, they would like a comprehensive and anonymous survey of former youth group members to see why they might have dropped out, candid conversations with teens and adult educators before events, and conventions offering meaningful training around the issue of consent and why hookup games can undermine it. Additionally, the young women would like to see the creation of a national position solely dedicated to discussing gender, sex, relationships, and consent in youth groups as well as ongoing workshops that address those issues. Much to their satisfaction, their call was heard. Gary Levin, the non-denominational BBYO's Senior Vice President of Community Impact, said he was proud of the young women for taking a stance. I had a range of reactions when I read the letter. I was proud that these young women spoke up. It's their own personal experience, and that's valid, said Levin. We are creating a safe environment for all our teens. We're trying to create and encourage healthy relationships. Levin met remotely with the six young women soon after the article was published. Ariel Handel, BBYO's Director of Inclusion, joined him on the call. While Levin never witnessed anything the article described directly, he definitely heard of instances, and they, such instances, wouldn't be out of the ordinary. Some of the behavior described in the article included grinding on the dance floor, seedy songs that slut-shame girls, a disturbing point system that allots values to specific hookups based on members' leadership positions, and a TikTok montage displaying pictures of clearly identifiable teens kissing without the subject's prior knowledge or consent. Madeline Canfield, an 18-year-old first-year student at Brown University, said she remembers how hearing the boys' chants at BBYO events made her recall, uh, recoil. They, they had just the most pressuring, hyper-masculine, toxically masculine chants. They're awful. The girls had chants that defined themselves in terms of sex and satisfying boys, and the boys celebrated their own escapades, Canfield said. For example, the words to one girl's chant include, We're on a boat, we never sink, we'll always float, we're the best, there ain't no other, look at our breasts, better than your mother's, we're BBGs, beautiful baby girls, and proud. Get on your knees and get loud. Canfield, who was 15 at the time, never told anyone how she felt. It wasn't until she attended the Rising Voices retreat a few years later that she realized she wasn't alone in feeling disappointed and disillusioned. When you're in it, it's hard to avoid this sexualized culture that is being pushed on you. There's an expectation of conformity, the chants and cheers, who is wearing what to an event, Canfield said. It wasn't until I was relatively removed from it that I realized I was wrong. You don't necessarily realize in the moment that it's not right. Instead, you think there's something wrong with me for not wanting to join in. After Nifty's 2021 North American president, Fletcher Block read the piece he reached out to the young women. My first impression on reading the article was that this is not okay. It's not okay if even one person feels like that at a retreat. Consent is crucial and the article awoke us to the idea that we can always do better, said 19-year-old Block. While Fletcher said he never experienced the same level of discomfort, toxicity, and sexual peer pressure as the co-authors, he identified with some aspects of what they described. 
After reading the piece, Block reached out to some of the article's co-authors to discuss how to improve the culture in addition to steps it took a few years ago. For example, Nifty's Brit Kahila, or Code of Conduct, has been a long-standing commitment among Nifty participants, and a section referring to consent was added in 2018. Other concrete steps being taken by Nifty teen leaders in dialogue with adult youth professionals is a full exploration by the Nifty Inclusion Task Force to review how the community acts and treats each other, leading toward making a meaningful cultural shift. The e-Jewish philanthropy article has generated negative feedback as well. One commenter called the atmosphere described in the article a big accusation that is both undocumented by fact and off-putting to so many boys who are presumed guilty and predatory before they enter a room. As co-author Lila Peck sees it, change is long overdue. What happens at these retreats is not isolated. It's not happening in just one region, in just one youth group, said Peck, now a senior at Charlotte Country Day School in Charlotte, North Carolina. In many ways, what transpires during these youth group retreats is reflective of a wider national problem, according to a 2017 Harvard University Graduate School of Education report, The Talk, How Adults Can Promote Young People's Healthy Relationships and Prevent Misogyny and Sexual Harassment. The majority of young people don't recognize certain types of gender-based degradation and subordination as societal problems, according to the study. At least 87% of young women reported having experienced at least one of the following during their lifetime. 55% have been catcalled, 41% have been touched without permission by a stranger, 47% have been insulted by a man with sexualized words such as slut, bitch, or hoe, and 42% have been insulted with sexualized words by a woman. It takes a lot of courage to come forward and call out and name the problem they are witnessing in their community. We must work so people can feel safe enough and comfortable enough and supported enough to share their experiences, said Ariella Neckritz, Senior Manager of Prevention Programs for Jewish Women International. JWI already works with several Jewish organizations, including the Zeta Beta Tau Fraternity and Hillel on campus. The programs train students to challenge harmful gender norms, ask for consent, be an active bystander, support survivors, shut down victim blaming, identity, uh, identify abusive relationships, and be a positive role model and build a culture of respect. We're not looking for an okay maybe or an okay tomorrow, Neckritz said, of obtaining consent. We want an enthusiastic yes. Everything else below that is not consent. We want young people to think about boundaries, to feel they are in a comfortable and safe place to assert themselves. BBYO, with support from JWI, is introducing two new workshops, Yes and No, K-N-O-W, and Choose Respect to its 531 North American chapters. The youth group plans to promote the programs, which were in development before the E-Jewish Philanthropy article was published, from all angles to make sure teens, advisors, and staff know about them and encourage chapters to participate. We want all of our teens to be healthy and safe mentally and emotionally, 
These retreats are about cultivating healthy connections, said Levin. Dalia Susan, one of the article's co-authors and a senior in Palo Alto, California, said she hopes the article will encourage deeper conversations around the idea of consent and peer pressure. We wanted to not only shine a light on the problems, but change the culture. We wanted to challenge these gender norms and the idea of teens being teens, Susan said. What we're really trying to do is teach positive behaviors about consent and respect and make it part of the Jewish experience. Now we'll switch over to JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Amid White House COVID-19 outbreak, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner pulled their three kids from a D.C. Jewish school by Ron Campeas. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump pulled their children out of a Jewish day school in Washington, D.C. two weeks before Election Day and three weeks after an outbreak of COVID-19 cases in and around the White House. The couple's children had attended the Milton Gottesman Jewish Day School of the nation's capital since moving to Washington in 2017, after Donald Trump, Ivanka's father, became president. Their three kids started a different school, the Melvin J. Berman Hebrew Academy in suburban Maryland, October 19th. They withdrew from the school. A spokesperson for Milton, as the school calls itself, said Wednesday in a statement. A source close to the family said they withdrew because Berman offered more in-person classes during the pandemic. Jared Kushner said in August a mid-national debate about whether schools should reopen, that he would send his children to school in person if he could. Berman switched to mostly in-person during September and October after opening virtually according to its website. But three parents of children attending Milton, which is switching to fully indoor in-person classes next week, said the withdrawal came after parents raised concerns that Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and top aide, and Ivanka Trump, his daughter and also a top aide, were seen at events not complying with the coronavirus protocols that Milton demanded of its parents. The protocols, which the Jewish Telegraphic Agency obtained, are based on Centers for Disease Control guidelines and ask families to avoid gatherings off campus where social distancing is not practiced or masks are not used. Students and families are expected to adhere to any and all social distancing guidelines and mask requirements while not on campus to minimize the risk of uh, contracting COVID-19 as well as reducing the risk of exposing employees and or Milton students to COVID-19, one passage relevant to parental compliance says. To help reduce the risk of COVID-19 exposure at the school, the school asks all families to limit their attendance at large public or private gatherings, events, and other activities to those where social distancing can be maintained and guidance regarding masks is followed. Families and students should avoid hosting or attending large gatherings where proper social distancing measures are not feasible. The protocols were in place in late September when the lack of masking and distancing at White House House and Trump campaign events became a major public health issue. One parent said a breaking point was the September 26th ceremony at the White House nominating Amy Coney Barrett for the U.S. Supreme Court to succeed the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Kushner and Ivanka Trump were not reported to be at the event, but at least 11 guests later tested positive for the coronavirus, including the president and others whom the couple encountered in the following days. That included September 29th, when Ivanka Trump traveled to Cleveland for the debate between her father and Joe Biden, 
Trump's family disregarded orders set by the Cleveland Clinic to wear masks throughout the debate. Photos showed Ivanka Trump watching the debate with no mask. There was concern for the safety of children because it was very clear the Kushner parents were violating public health recommendations, said the mother, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because her employer bans interactions with the media. Another inflection point, the mother said, came days later on October 2nd when Donald Trump announced that he had contracted the coronavirus. She said the school would not tell the parents whether the Kushners had informed the school of the last day of contact between the president and his grandchildren. Trump also declined to make public the date of his last negative COVID-19 test. At the same time of rising cases in the states and children going back to school, we were seeing the Kushners violating quarantine requirements, this mother said. Milton is split now between remote and in-school learning. Of special concern, said the first mother, was that the Kushners' youngest child was in pre-kindergarten, which was indoors. Classes for older children were held outdoors. Masked but indoors, and there are the Secret Service who are with the children, she said. That was also a concern. The first parent said that as of next week, most Milton classes would be indoors three or four days a week. The November 16 return to almost total in-person schooling has been known since before the Kushner's withdrawal. That parent and a third with knowledge of the situation who have no relationship with each other said the school tried to work out a compromise with the Kushners with the understanding that the couple needed allowances in their capacity as senior governmental aides who also were in senior positions in Donald Trump's re-election campaign. There was no agreement in the end. Berman Academy also asks parents to adhere to COVID compliance including limiting inessential travel, wearing masks, and avoiding hotspots. Avi Berkowitz, a close aide to Jared Kushner, who is also the administration's top Middle East peace negotiator, said the idea that COVID-19 rules had led to the family's departure from the school was inaccurate. The Kushners protect the privacy of their children and won't engage in idle gossip, he said. The family's withdrawal came just weeks before the election to determine whether Donald Trump would serve a second term. It is unknown whether they plan to remain in Washington or return to New York City now that Joe Biden has won, though the president continues to claim election fraud and has not conceded. And an update to the story, the White House has issued a new statement in response. Unnamed sources attacking a family's decision about what is best for their kids in the middle of a pandemic is shameful, said Carolina Hurley, a White House spokeswoman. As is true for all families, schooling choices and education are deeply personal decisions, and they owe no one, especially idle gossips, seeking press attention and explanation. And next from JTA, a Proud, Boys le- a Proud Boys leader is trying to rebrand the group as explicitly white supremacist and anti-Semitic by Ben Sales. One of the leaders of the Proud Boy, the far-right group that President Donald Trump told to stand back and stand by during a presidential debate, is trying to rebrand the organization as explicitly white supremacist and anti-Semitic. Kyle Chapman, the founder of a tactical defense arm of the Proud Boys, known for engaging in street violence, claimed in a message on the encrypted chat app Telegram that he has staged a coup against the current leader of the Proud Boys, a black man named Enrique Tario. We will confront the Zionist criminals who wish to destroy our civilization, Chapman wrote after using other bigoted language. We recognize that the West was built by the white race alone, 
and we owe nothing to any other race. Chapman also wrote that he has renamed the group the Proud Goys, referring to the Jewish term for non-Jews that neo-Nazis have tried to appropriate and use to symbolize their anti-Semitism. The move comes as the Proud Boys are preparing to protest with other right-wing groups in Washington, D.C. on behalf of Trump's unsubstantiated claims that the presidential election was stolen from him through widespread voter fraud. It is unclear how Chapman's call has been received by others in the group. Other Proud Boys channels on Telegram have not reflected the changes he wants to institute, and a message from the administrator of once said, No, we are not the Proud Boys. No, Kyle didn't stage a coup, and then referred to him with an ABIST slur. The Proud Boys were founded in 2016 by Gavin McInnes, a far-right provocateur and misogynist, a misogynist who also co-founded the Vice media brand. The group has billed itself as a Western chauvinist fraternal organization, but thus far has insisted that its preference for Western civilization was not built on racist or anti-Semitic views. It has a chapter in Israel. I denounce anti-Semitism, I denounce racism, I denounce fascism, Tario has said, according to the right-wing outlet Washington Times. I denounce communism and any other ism that is prejudiced toward people of their race, religion, culture, tone of skin. However, the Proud Boys have documented ties to white supremacist groups. McInnes posted videos surrounding a 2007 trip to Israel in which he made anti-Semitic statements. A former Proud Boys member was the organizer of the deadly 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Members are known for wearing gold and black Fred Perry polo shirts, which the retailer has discontinued in opposition to the group, and engaging in street brawls with left-wing protesters. At the first presidential debate in September, when asked if he denounced the group, Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. Trump later said he didn't know about the group and told it to stand down. But the group adopted Stand Back and Stand By as a rallying cry, sparking fears that Trump's words would, engage, uh, would encourage far-right groups to foment unrest on Election Day. That has not happened, but the Proud Boys and other right-wing groups are preparing to mobilize in support of Trump's false claims of election fraud. Last Saturday, protesters, uh, rather, yesterday, protesters were expected to converge in Washington in an event being billed as a million Make America Great March. The rally is to be led by Scott Pressler, a pro-Trump activist who has been affiliated with ACT for America, an anti-Islamic group. In his post on Telegram, Chapman said he deposed Tario, whom he referred to with a racial slur. He wrote that the group will now focus on the issues of white genocide, the failures of multiculturalism, and the right for white men and women to have their own countries where white interests are written into law and part of the body politic. White genocide is a myth advanced by white supremacists that falsely claims that non-white immigration and interracial marriage are a conspiracy to destroy white people. And next from JTA on Singles Day, Israel's official state Twitter account plays Matchmaker by Sam Sokol. Jerusalem. Israel's foreign ministry took on the role of Shadkin, or traditional Jewish matchmaker, on Wednesday, offering to help set up social media users in honor of Singles Day. 
Posting on the official Israel Twitter account, the ministry reached out to singles and Jewish mothers everywhere, urging people to post their age, location, and hobbies, and promising to retweet the information to its more than 665,000 followers in order to help them find that special someone to bring home for the holidays. The Israel account started things off stating that it was 72 years old, its gender was neutral, and that it enjoyed long walks on the beach, archaeology, anything tech-related, and Fauda, a reference to the popular Israeli TV series. Singles Day, an unofficial festival started in China in the early 1990s to celebrate the romantically uninvolved, has evolved in recent years into a social media sensation and a major commercial holiday rivaling Black Friday. Retweeting one single follower in Germany, uh, from Germany, the ministry asserted that Israel was the perfect honeymoon destination, prompting another user to comment that he would invite my ex-wife for the honeymoon we never had to Haifa. You sure you want to do that, the ministry replied. Jewish mother here with a gorgeous 26-year-old daughter, above all, no Meshuganas, please, another user retweeted by the ministry wrote, using the Yiddish term for a crazy person and a nod to the hit-or-miss nature of online dating. Responding to the Israeli tweet, Matthew Kupfer, news editor for the Kiev Post newspaper in Ukraine, quipped that while Ukraine has a very creative Twitter account, he couldn't see them doing this for the Ukrainian diaspora. The Ukrainian government's official Ukraine account actually responded to its Israeli counterpart, however, giving its age as 29, actually much older but don't tell anyone, its location is Central Europe and its hobbies is good food, rave parties, and coding. Tamar Schwartzbard, the Israeli ministry's head of new media, explained in a telephone interview with JTA that her goal was to reach as many people as possible, and that means connecting to internet trends, trends and appealing to a younger generation that spends most of its time online. We adapt to that role. I saw it posted all over the place, and especially in this climate, people want to relax a little online and want some positive posts on their feed. And this is a great way we can help the entire world and help find love, help people find love, she said. A lot of people are posting information, and obviously with the Jewish material role we have in Israel, maternal role we have in Israel, we're looking at different tweets and retweeting people to help find their match and hoping for the best. Even the most innocuous tweets can be contentious when it comes to the Middle East, however. And numerous users tweeted comments highly critical of Israel, many of them relating to the ongoing conflict with the Palestinians. Occupation Palestine, one user tweeted. Location, doesn't exist, another replied. Hobbies, committing war crimes, a third said. Israel isn't the only government, uh, the only Israeli government account to embrace internet memes and snark. Last year, the Israel Defense Forces trolled then-British Labor Secretary Party Leader Jeremy Corbyn for sharing a happy Passover message featuring an image of a loaf of bread, a food specifically prohibited on the holiday. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you, as always, for listening. <laughs>